tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Welcome back to Tip Today. Thanks very much indeed, Pat. We're still getting in uh, lots of lovely texts about uh, Emma and we will bring those to you in just uh, a little while. Don't forget that fantastic prize as well because Griffith College, they're celebrating the wide range of courses available at the Academy. You can find out more about that on griffithcollege.ie. But they've given us a €500 euro voucher towards one of their degree courses and uh, they look after business computing and hospitality management. So again, we're looking for a finalist today. We'll give that away uh, tomorrow, but it's based on you interacting with us by text on 83 Legal discussion on Tip Today is brought to you in association with Lynch Solicitors Clan Mel on the web at lynchsolicitors.ie and at divorceinireland.com. And John Lynch is with me in studio. Morning, John. Uh, good morning, Fran. People might be confused and think it's a Tuesday now. I'm because confused. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, your normal slot with us is on a Tuesday. And thank you very much indeed for, for accommodating us with that. We're going to go to a query we got last time, John. And, in fact, you got it uh, through the phone as well since, didn't you? Yeah, it, it was a query which I kind of reserved my position on because you. I think you asked me a question. We were dealing with the issue of... Um, Divorce and the effect of divorce on succession rights. And basically, when you're in a divorce scenario, in fact, when you're in a judicial separation scenario or when you're separated, it will often come up that you can either, you know, the the way that you can regularize things from a legal perspective, if you're in fact separated and no longer living together and the relationship is over, you can do a separation agreement, which means you can sit down, reach an agreement, and there's a formal procedure on that insofar as there's, you know, standard provisions in it. And one of the one of the standard provisions or one of the provisions that you would often would come up for discussion is what do we do about succession rights? Because when you get married uh, as a spouse, you have, thanks to Charlie High, uh, a right under the Succession Act and this, he introduced the Succession Act in the 60s. And one of the reasons that, one of his stated reasons for uh, bringing in the Succession Act was to protect the right of the spouse. Um, particularly in the 60s, we were, we were talking about protecting the wife, the wife as opposed to the husband, because at that point in time, a lot of property was in the name of the husband. Of course, yeah. And you often had some strange, well, maybe they might seem strange to us now, but at the time, not so strange where the husband would go off and make a will not tell, not tell uh, the wife about it at all and leave everything to the second cousin twice removed or something and the poor woman has nothing and doesn't even have the family home. So Charlie introduced the Succession Act way ahead of other jurisdictions and basically gave the spouse a legal right. And basically what this legal right was that it gave her a kind of a veto on the will. So she could literally say, no, I want one third of the estate and I'm entitled to it as a matter of law. That found its way into divorce legislation to a certain extent, because when we had our very first um, major case in uh, divorce legislation or, or under the Divorce Act, it was called TNT. And TNT, which was almost, I'd say, 
I think it was about 11 years ago. Uh, TNT, uh, basically, the court was being asked, how do you kind of provide, is there any yardstick? Is there any kind of a, a guidance <laughs> that we could we could give the courts and the, the other courts or judges or practitioners any guidance that the, the Supreme Court and this was the Supreme Court decision that they could give people and the Supreme Court uh, Keane said used and talked about this yardstick of one third which he very much likened to the one third right that the spouse has when they're married. So it wasn't a huge leap to say, well, if you're going to break up the marriage and if the spouse had stayed within the marriage, they would have got been automatically entitled to one third. Mm. So he kind of applied that kind of a benchmark. Now, it was simply a benchmark. But... Just to go back to where we started, which is, you know, how does uh, a marital breakup scenario, how does it address the whole issue of this entitlement or this succession right? Because if you want, it's not limited, obviously, to one third, because you can obviously make will uh, and in your will, as long as you maintain the right and respect the one third right you could give all of your estate to your spouse if you know what I'm saying right, yeah. so the the right is just if you like just the threshold you can't go below the one third uh, unless and again like everything else you can go below it if you actually sign something to the effect i.e. the party who has the right the one third right could sign something and say well actually no I'm waiving my right to that one third so but let's not complicate mm, it okay. the, the reality of it is that uh, there, there is that kind of if you like standard that you can't go below in terms of the one third so that brings into play when you are breaking up this contractual relationship of marriage as to how you deal with this right. Because obviously, um, when you're sitting down to uh, renegotiate the terms, if you like, um, you will start, as I said to you, by possibly dealing with it by way of agreement, which is a succession agreement. So the succession agreement quite commonly deals with it and the succession agreement would put that issue on the table and the parties would, if they were sitting down and saying, well, OK, right, what do we do about the family home? What do we do about, um, you know, maintenance? What do we do about access? And then what do we do about succession rights? So quite commonly, you would put in a clause in the agreement that says we hereby waive all succession rights. So both parties go their separate way and literally waive their succession rights. Almost have a picture of people going left and right waving, but mm. you know what I mean? So that's a, a separation agreement and you can make your agreement and you can put that in writing there. Mm. Uh, the next uh, option uh, if you don't sit down and reach an agreement is you go into court and uh, going into court is where you apply for a judicial separation now again bear in mind we have this uh, as as I've often said my law lecture however many years ago I won't say how many used to talk about the labyrinthine forces of Irish morality finding its way into the Irish legal system and it certainly found its way in when it comes to uh, uh, marital breakup because we in Ireland have this kind of um, uh, twin track judicial separation and then divorce and the only difference significant difference between the two of them is the right to remarry you you often wonder why the hell they didn't just simply say look let's just introduce divorce full stop but anyway we had to do it our own way mm. so that's fair enough but in the judicial separation 
you can't have both, if you know what I mean. You can't have a separation agreement and then go off and get a judicial separation. Right. They are kind of a pair. You you, you, you can't separate them, mm. unlike a, a marriage, but there you go. Uh, so a judicial separation situation, you're going into a court of law. So the only difference is you're not sitting down making the, you know, agreeing the terms of the agreement. The, the judge actually does it, or you do it by agreement and then you make it a court order. Often in that situation, again, there's provision made for succession. Under the Judicial Separation Act, there's a specific clause in it that deals with uh, succession. And quite commonly, it's addressed because, again, not to complicate things, but the problem with this twin track of judicial separation and divorce is that for quite a number of years, you used, it used to be like you'd have a crick in your neck looking over your shoulder at divorce because you're trying to do deal with judicial separation. But at the same time, you're looking behind you going, well, Okay, I could have divorce coming down the track. Right. So I, uh, you know, how and so you for quite a number of years it was amazing to watch judges going. Well, actually, this is judicial separation, so I'm not going to really sort everything this time. I'm yes. going to wait for the divorce. For the divorce, of course. Yeah. It made it made it, you know it was very convoluted and very yeah. hard to deal with because you were kind of half dealing with it, if you know what I mean. But anyway, that that's just an aside. So. When you come to divorce, which is the next one, you likewise deal with succession rights. And there's an added complication to all of this, and which was addressed in the divorce and judicial legislation, and that is that you can, even though you have dealt with um, succession rights, so let's say the two parties get together, let's let's keep it at its simplest and say they sit down and they make an agreement and let's say that they waive succession rights in the agreement and they go their separate ways and 30 years later one of them dies, the other is in very bad straits they can, under the succession right, under the succession act, make an application to the court, to ask the court to make provision for them out of the estate of their former partner. Right. And it's kind of a jurisdiction that the court has under the Succession Act. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a justice provision that whereby a discretionary um, kind of power in the court to say, well, look, listen, you know, would you have a look at this again? Now, under the Divorce Act, you can block that. So when you're doing a divorce, uh, and this is, you know, again, people looking at it going, well, wait a second here, I've everything done, I've, we've gone our separate ways, but there's this little discretionary provision in the courts which we want to close out. So under uh, 1810, I know it because we often make these orders under 1810, it was like, it's funny, we were at, um, we were doing something, we were at a training session. I know none of my team are going to be listening to me so I can say this <laughs> but we were at a training session we we're trying to uh, you know one of my other interests obviously is is ma- is business and managing business and manage my own business but we were looking at uh, workflows and I don't know if you know anything about workflows I didn't know anything about them until I looked at the manual but anyway uh, but workflows are a way of trying to make things as efficient as possible sure. and you're always trying to make things more efficient uh, but um, somebody started one of the, the the guy who was training it on us and somebody else in the group they started talking to each other during the course of the training saying oh it's a one to multiple table and etc 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 and I could see we're looking around there was there was six of us there and I could see the other three going 
what the hell are they on about? But it's this kind of me saying 1810. 1810 makes perfect sense to anybody involved in my business, but it makes absolutely no, no sense, sense to anybody who isn't. So anyway, I'm just thinking, I'm, I was just, <laughs> I, I stopped the trainer and, yes. and said, cut the rubbish, will you? What are you talking about? None of us know what this is about. <laughs> so what is 1810? But 1810 is effectively an order that blocks an application, a subsequent application or a later application by somebody. So it literally gives you absolute finality and it shuts it shuts out any possibility in future of making an application under the Succession Act. But your last question to me last week was, or I think it was maybe a listener that asked it. It was, a, it came in on text. It came yeah. in on text, mm. yeah. was a very good question. And I'm glad to say I reserved my position on it because it, the question was, what happens if you have a will, pre-existing will, and the will is your standard husband and wife will? So I, John Lynch, leave all of my estate, both real and personal, to my spouse, Ashling, uh, to do whatever she wishes with it. And this this might be good to be talking about and what happens if we separate. But the, the question then came up, what happens if years later you go through the whole process of separation, be it separation agreement or judicial separation or divorce, you go through that entire process and you have your blocking order under the discretionary element of it and <clears throat> you have various other orders. Right. But you never change your will. Okay. So you have an existing will that says on the face of it, I leave all my estate, both real and personal, to my wife, Mary. I've switched it, if you noticed. So I I leave everything to my, my wife, Mary. Then we go through the whole process of separation, which by definition means we discuss all these things, we mm-hmm. divide everything, let's say equally, we go our separate ways, and then 20 years later, I pop my clogs and Mary surfaces and goes, well, I have a will here. That, that leaves everything to me and I want to I right. want to exercise my right now, under the will. Now here's the magic magic question. Yeah. yeah. And there's, How there's, relevant is it then? And there's a, there's a silver bullet because mm. the, the, the issue with it is that I went looking at the textbooks after we came off air and I looked at two. I looked at Shatter. Shatter. You know Shatter. Shatter. As in Alan? As in Alan, yeah. yeah. Alan wrote a book a big, big book. Like, it's so big, you could... It's very effective in court because if you throw it at anybody, it'll certainly... It's fairly effective. It's a big, huge tome. And in in the middle of it, he discussed this. And he was a great man and probably still is a great man to recommend where the loopholes are and how and why they should be changed. And he identified this as a loophole. He said that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. This is... 10 years, 15 years ago now and it hasn't been addressed. It hasn't been specifically addressed as I understand it. And I read then another textbook that raised the argument that was going through my mind, which is if I make a will leaving everything to my wife and that person is long my wife, does the will stand? Um, And the other issue that would go through your mind is that if you go through the whole process of judicial separation and divorce and you discuss the whole area of, uh, you know, dividing everything equally and making provision and, and the whole thrust of the divorce legislation is that you make proper provision for the spouses. So and dependent children. So the court's mandate under the constitution and under the legislation is to make proper provision. So 
you it begs the question that if you sit down uh, you know and I'm only I'm only using that term but if you if you simply the court looks at a situation and goes right uh, and they say well okay let's make proper provisions they were like we'll do this we'll do this we'll do this now we've made proper provision we've dealt with the blocking order under the 1810 as I was telling you and they've dealt with all that but nobody knows about this well does that will stand or can you argue that you've gone through the whole process of proper provision and therefore that should stand up? I don't and can't give you a definitive answer on it because I don't know that it, it has hasn't been, been tested, has it? I don't know that it has been tested. And funny, when, when I was thinking about it on air the last time, that's exactly what I thought to myself. Now, look, there's two things that you would say with some certainty. And one is that you should always change your will anyway. You know, and we've often said that you and I have discussed this ad nauseum. I'm sure from your perspective, whatever about your listeners, but the the reality of it is that you should you you would have changing circumstances anyway after a separation, and you would and should be sitting down to look at what those changing circumstances are. And a will is obviously the obvious way to deal with that. That's number one. Number two, it obviously is very dependent on the orders that were made during the course of the. Uh, the whole breakup scenario. So, if there was a separation agreement, you would need to look at that to see what did it address it because there is a standard clause in separation agreement that waives succession rights. And uh, the argument obviously is that if people sit down by agreement contractually and agree we're going our separate ways, there are no longer succession rights, that should override the will, one would argue. The second thing is if you sit down and you're dealing with the judicial separation, you go through the court process and you make orders. There are orders there that usually waive succession rights. So again, you must look to the order. So all I'm simply saying is Mm. it could slip through the crack. I could see it. But as a lay person looking at it, I would say to you, John, that a will can be contested. So, in this case, then, Mm. um, wouldn't it be easy to contest it based on the other decision-making? Good question, and it's certainly a common-sense way of looking at it. Uh, But, uh, as I've often said to you, common sense doesn't necessarily (laughs) prevail when you have two people who are prepared to make opposite arguments. But, normally, when you contest a will, you're contesting it on legal grounds. And the legal grounds that you'll contest a will will be that the will is invalid, either technically invalid because there's something wrong with it, i.e. that it was made in a way that that, uh, doesn't stand up so that you maybe set up a class of beneficiaries and that class doesn't stand up or it makes a bequest that isn't clear and you don't know where it's going or... So, in other words, there's something on the face of the will that's invalid. And the argument, obviously, that, that, that one would be making in, that, in the scenario that we're talking about is that you'd be arguing that the will on the face of it says, I give it to my spouse, but the person is longer, no longer a spouse. But the opposite argument to that is that, um, you know, is that just simply a label or is it an identifier? So, in other words, are you just simply using that as a way of, of identifying Mary? So, Mary is your spouse as opposed to your neighbour, Mary, or your sister, Mary. Do you know what I mean? So, You'd love to challenge this, wouldn't you? It would be an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let me take a break. We'll be back with uh, John in just a moment. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or email tiptoday at tipfm.com.
No, John, we were going to talk about something else completely, but there's certainly a bite on what you've been talking to us about and some questions in on, on, on that. Frank, could you please ask John that if a will was made and the sole beneficiary of that will had died and the person leaving all this had died and never changed the will, what would happen? That's John in uh, Tipperary. That's okay, John, well, if I, if I think, if, if I understand you, you're saying that uh, somebody makes a will leaving it to somebody who dies and then they die, what happens? So I'm assuming that the person to whom they left it died first. So if they die first, the will they, that gift fails and goes falls back into what we call residue. So if I leave a will, if I make a will leaving it to Fran here and Fran dies, his whatever I left him comes back to me. So it's, it, com- it comes back and forms part of my estate. And uh, then if I die, then whatever you know, if there's no provisions under the will, it'll go to whoever my next of kin is. So if if I understand them correctly, that's that's the answer to that question. There's always what we call a residuary clause in a will. So if I make a will, for example, and I say I give everything to Joe Bloggs, I give and sorry, I give everything between Joe and Mary equally. Uh and then I put in what they call a residuary clause. The residuary clause usually says all the rest, the remainder of my estate, I give equally to all my children, if you know what I mean. So anything that isn't specifically given to people will fall into what, what we call the residue. Okay. So if a gift fails, for example, because somebody predeceases the person who makes the will, and the person who makes the will is called the testator. So if, if somebody pre- predeceases the testator, except, there's, and as I said to you, there's always exceptions, except in the case of children. There's a particular rule with children that if a child predeceases you, that child's share will go to that child's children. That's an exception to the failing of, of the Oh, gift. that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And you can, you can have a situation where you can put in a clause in the will that actually blocks that, that says, no, it won't go to the children, it'll go back to the siblings. Right. So you always have to be aware of that fact that there's an automatic rule that if I've got three children, I leave everything to my three children, one of those three predeceases me, that share will automatically go, what, and I love the term per stirpes, it goes to the children equally. So in other words, the one third share will be divided equally among those children. Uh, that's the automatic rule. You can at you, the age of eighteen, I presume. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, if if they're underage, it'll go to whoever the the guardian of the children will hold their sh- share for them. But in the you can put in a provision in the will that that stops that that says no, it doesn't go to the children, because in that instance, then it would come back to the other siblings. So if you had the three children we're talking about. Right without trying to make this too complicated, so I give it to my three children. If I block it, this rule, this automatic rule, what would happen then is that that one share would fall back to the other two. Okay, okay, interesting. One of our listeners on, but I think it just got slightly the wrong end of the stick. A listener saying, so on the day of the divorce, one person says, yes, thank goodness, I'm free. Uh, my only son has everything. And that person passes away and the ex-partner can come back with an old win- will and take everything and the child gets nothing. That's not quite the case. But you're saying that it's sort of, it hasn't been challenged. Well, it's not, so it? much, yeah, but it's not to do with the child getting nothing. It's to do with the former partner, partner making a claim. The child is always... A child 
if I understand what's been said there, we're not talking about the children. We're yes. not talking about children. We're no, talking but the point there is that in the divorce agreement yes. that, that the child is looked after. And Correct. I suppose the point that they're making is this will then suddenly surfaces and does that deny the child? Well, well, it could insofar as if it would deny the char- child. Yes, it, it could. Yes. I mean, and, and they're right, it could deny the child if it were to stand up. But the other thing to remember there, of course, is that, um, and, and it's, it's an interesting point and a, and a good one, because the other element to this would be that if, if you had that situation that arose and you had a child, uh, let's say an adult child, who would have expected to have benefit, uh, you're then looking at uh, an application by the child to say that they haven't been properly provided for. So you you have what we call oh, a section right. 117, which is an application by the child to say that they haven't. So that's another angle that your listener has actually put their finger on, that you could open out the argument through the children to make an application under 117, arguing that the divorce per se, that there would have been an expectation that they would have benefited as a result of, in other words, that they would okay. have been the only next of kin. All so right. will, you, will you take one more? Because this is, my husband and I are divorced. We've left the house in both our names. Uh, one lives in the house. On the death of either one of us, the house goes back to the other. And on both our deaths, it goes to our adult children of the marriage. Now, that's just more of a statement than a question. Is that kosher? Is that... Oh yeah, you can. You don't have to. Yeah, that what the what what your listener I presume is talking about there is that, which is a very um, I was going to say, sensible, uh, you know, yeah. very prag- pragmatic, pragmatic, practical yeah. way of dealing with it. What they've done there is rather than selling it out the house or whatever, they've left it uh, in a situation where they're joint owners of the house. And if they're joint owners of the house, then the survivor takes all. So if one or other of them predeceases the other, their interest will go to that one. This will go to the other party. So the you know in an in a in an I was going to say a normal is there such a thing, but in 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 your husband and wife scenario, uh, quite commonly you will own the family home jointly, and there's two types of ownership tenants in common. Uh, joint owner, joint tenancy. Usually, it's joint tenancy, which means the great old Latin phrase "jus accrescendi," which is that the survivor takes all. That's the concept. So, if if you and I own something jointly, one of us dies first. My that entire interest goes to the other party. Mm. Then that party then owns it, and then they can do whatever they wish. Now, in terms of the child getting it, well, obviously the child would only get it. Um, either by way, by virtue of a transfer subsequently or by a will. There is nothing automatic in the child getting it, if you know what I mean, unless they were to set up a trust scenario where the ch- where they would hold the property in trust for the child, which is complicating it somewhat. But uh, what, what I presume the listener is saying is that the intention then would be that the survivor would then give it you know, would will it or gift it, either transfer it to the child or will it to the child. Because again, you may remember we were talking last week, was it last week, about mutual wills? And I was saying to you that uh, a mutual will is where two parties make a will and they in the will they say this is a mutual will. And what the effect of saying this is a mutual will is that the 
husband and wife, let's go back to the basics on this. Husband and wife make a will, each leaving it to the other uh, with alternative substitution, what we call substitution mm-hmm. provisions for the children. So leave it to one child. Let's say it's one child. So Mary and Billy make the will. It's a mutual will. They say on the face of it, this is a mutual will. And they say, well, I leave it to you, which is like your joint scenario. Mm-hmm. That this, I leave it to you or you leave it to me, whichever mm-hmm. of us gets first. And then after we go, we leave it to Johnny. Right. Now, that's a mutual will. Mutual wills, by definition, means that you don't have the scenario that if the first person, if it's not a mutual will and you die, the other party could change the will and not leave it to Johnny, could okay. give it to, leave it to I'm someone else. I'm but if you. you specify it as a mutual will, well, then the other party is tied. It's like an agreement or a contract. Very good. Very good indeed. All right, John, always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks very much indeed. John Lynch from Lynch Solicitors 